count the numbers and I'll tell you how many more I have to bring. Okay. Well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, never know what you're going to be asked. And I'm perfectly comfortable at saying, I don't know anything about that because I'm not going to pretend. It's really not a good idea to pretend you know the answer to a question and you don't because somebody will call you out on it. All right. More new research, like this morning with the connectomes. This is research in how differently men and women respond to stress. And I think it's absolutely staggering. So here we go. We'll start with brain benders again. How many of you did the last set? Okay, not too many of you. Well, those of you who did, if it's the first time you did it, you've already laid down a neuron pathway in case you ever want to do that again. And this is the takeaway. Be careful what you do once. Because when you do something once, your brain is very careful to start laying out a pathway. So if you ever want to do it again, you've already got a head start. So if it's something that's not good for you and you do it once... It's always going to be easier for you to do it again. All right, so top left, word in a word. And remember, it died in the wool. Remember, it's how it sounds more than how it's written. Can you all see that, died in the wool? Good. Second on the left. Slightly overcast. Good job. See, slightly is there. It's just slightly backwards. Uh, third on the left, another word in a word. Shot in the dark. <laughs> Good. Now you'll get more. Fourth on the left. The word is... If it doesn't seem logical going left to right, then go right to left. Split decision. There's decision. And it's split. Top right. Word in a word. Tree in the street. Good job. Second on the right. Never on Sunday. Third on the right. Hurry up. And bottom right, heads up. Good. These are very good for your brain. So there's hundreds of them on my website. No charge. All right. People sometimes say to me, boy, I wish I could get the stress out of my life. If I didn't have any stress, I'd just be in such good shape. And my response is, yeah, you'd be in a box under the ground somewhere. Because the absence of stress is death. Meaning, you know, Hans Selye took the word stress from engineering. He was the first to apply it to human beings. And stress just means that the steel or the person or whatever is able to adapt and make changes. You know, it can expand with heat and contract with cold. And so stress is something that just means you're alive. 
There are three types of categories. This is not your routine stress lecture, but I want to get all of us on the same page. Three categories. You stress, which is very positive stress, meaning, you know, you may have to prepare and work at it a little bit, but it helps you grow. So public speaking is you stress. Yes, I have worked hard to make slides and prepare to talk to you, but I'm learning as I do it. I'm paving my brain software with myelin every time I make a presentation. So it's good for me as long as my life is in balance. Then there's distress, and that's outright negative stress. If you have a choice, get rid of distress. Occasionally something will happen. You know, 2014 we had the earthquake in Napa County, Napa Valley. Nobody even knew there was a fault in Napa. Blew all the windows out of my porch. That was distress. But, again, you decide how you're going to deal with it. And then there's mistress, and please note how it's spelled. Because the first time I did this presentation, I heard a female voice in the audience go, I know about mistress. My husband's had three of them. And my response was, I think that would be distress. But mistress is the types of stress that we often miss, literally. Sitting too much, you know. Michelle Obama said, sitting is killing Americans. You know, we're not getting enough exercise. Uh, Prolonged hours in front of an electronic screen, whether that's an iPhone or an iPad or a computer, and you don't have tinted glasses on to prevent all of that blue light from going into your brain. That can be extremely, extremely stressful. Not understanding male-female differences. I need to give you one more example. A man and his wife are driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles. After about an hour or so, she turns to him and says, Are you thirsty? Now, male speech just answers the question. And if they can get by with a grunt or a nod, they'll do that. So he thinks, Am I thirsty? He says, Nope. Keeps driving. She begins to steam. After another ten minutes, she blows. Because she's thirsty. But she didn't say that. She asked him if he was thirsty, and he answered the question. Because male speech and female speech are very different. Female speech tends to initiate conversation with a question. That works fine with another female, doesn't work so well with another male, because they do not generally start a conversation with a question. If two women were driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles, and one woman said, you know, Maxine, are you thirsty? She'd think about it, and she would either say, no, I'm not, but are you? Or she'd say, yeah, I am thirsty. You know, you want to talk about stopping? So we'd have a 15-minute conversation about how thirsty we were and what we wanted to drink and where we were going to stop and when we were going to stop and so on. It works perfectly well. But if you don't understand that difference, there's a problem. So two men 
They're driving from Sacramento to Los Angeles. They'd never even asked that question. If the driver was thirsty, he'd just pull off. Park at the 7-Eleven, get out. Assume that his male passenger, if he was hungry, he'd get out. If he wasn't, he'd just stay put till he came back. There would be no conversation. So women have to learn that asking a male a question will get a literal answer. They will not start a conversation. And men, if you are very wise, and somebody asks you a question and you're ready to answer it for yourself, you might stop and think, ooh, maybe that's female speech. Maybe she doesn't really care whether I'm thirsty or not, but she wants to talk about her being thirsty. And the functional thing for a female is to just say, Harry, I'm thirsty. Stop at the next store. He'll do that, usually. But there won't be any disconnect. Do you get how different it is? Pretty different. And that could certainly be distress or mistress. All right. So distress and mistress can kill brain cells, which is not helpful. I mentioned this morning that we don't believe there have ever been two brains on this planet that are identical. There aren't any right now. There probably never will be. So so stress is unique to each brain. And what might stress my brain doesn't stress your brain at all. And, you know, what stresses your brain, I might wonder, I wonder why they're given that any credibility. So remember that this is brain-specific, although we do have a couple of categories that I'm going to talk about. So stress reactions, whether you're going to go into fight-flight, whether you're going to go into tend-befriend, whether you're going to go into conserve-withdraw, all that happens in the brainstem layer. We learn them, those responses in childhood. So if your responses to managing stress are not working for you, I encourage people to go back and figure out what did you observe in childhood? How did the big people in your life handle stress? Because you're probably either doing it that same way or 180 degrees different. And 180 degrees from dysfunctional is still dysfunctional. It's just a different kind of dysfunction. It relates to perception and flexibility. The more flexible you can be, the less stress you're going to experience. It's the trees who can't flex in the storm that get uprooted. It's the trees that can flex that stay standing. So you can have stress triggered by any of the three protective emotions, anger, fear, or sadness. And a host of other things, the sense of being different. You know, people will come to me and say, I just don't fit in, and it's so stressful. And I'm going, who wants to fit in? We each have a unique brain. Enjoy your brain. Find a way to use it. I never fit in. I still don't fit in. I don't want to fit in. I'm doing what my brain wants to do well. And... That's a perception thing. I mean, it's nice if somebody likes what you do, but I don't even have to have that. 
you know, this is valuable information. Every time I give a presentation, it further implants it in my brain. So if nobody else got it, I just got it better. Marginalized, rejected, disenfranchised, abuse. You need to recover from some of those things, but it doesn't have to inundate your life with stress. You can learn healthier responses. So we've talked about stress is unique to an individual brain. However, we do have research that male brains and female brains do find different types of situations more or less stressful. And by the way, it's after lunch. 50% of people in studies learned best when they were up and moving, and that was unrelated to lunch. So get up any time you want and move around. If that's how you learn best, do it. I'm so pleased to learn that in Australia, they're trying a, a new uh, method, if you want, in schools. Each schoolroom will have half sitting and half standing desks, and kids can move around as they want to. And start time is 10 a.m. And hopefully everybody will be awake by then. And they're doing meticulous data collection. And they think what they're going to find is that grades go up, absenteeism goes down, illness goes down, you know, learning goes up. So it's going to be interesting to follow that. So for males, the things that tend to stress a male, especially in this country, have to do with work issues, unemployment, bankruptcy, you know, being fired, can't find a job. Because unfortunately, many male brains equate their worth with whether or not they're employed and how much salary they're making. That's just one part of life. You know, avoid putting all your eggs in the basket of how much money you're making. Suicide rate is pretty high among some of the males who are making the most money. So maybe that's not where you want to go. Interestingly enough, separation and divorce statistically is much harder on males than females. And here's one of the reasons. When you do large sample studies and you ask females in this country, how many people do you have in your immediate support system that you could call up on the phone anytime you want to and just talk? And the average number is nine. You ask the average male, how many people do you have in your immediate support system that you can just call up to and talk? And the number is? It's zero or one. And if it's one, who is that one? Their spouse, usually. So if they get divorced or break up, he, and he only had one, he's got none. And everybody needs somebody that they can talk to. Men need to, you know, I don't know what you want to do, Pastor. You might want to get people to come and, you know, play volleyball one night a week and do a little camaraderie here. Because they don't, you guys don't have what we have, and you'd be well advised to get some. Because everybody has stuff they've got to deal with, and you can't do it alone. Nobody knows everything. 
So statistically, separation and divorce are much harder on males. Women think it's harder on them because their income usually gets decimated. But emotionally, it's actually harder on the males. And yet they don't have any divorce support groups to speak of. So for females, bottom line, conflict, hate conflict. Women will do almost anything to avoid conflict because their brain seems to be more aligned with relational accord. You know, there's some outliers, but in general, it's conflict, and we're going to have conflict, period. It's how you respond to it that makes the difference. Serious illness, separation and death within their proximal social network, meaning you've got a really good friend and he or she dies, that's much harder on the female brain than it is on the male brain. The male brain seems to be a little more pragmatic and says, well, it's too bad they kicked the bucket, but that's life. And it's a little bit harder for females. And their proximal social network certainly involves a child. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. Their parents dying, their spouse or their close friends, and that seems to be a little more stressful for females. Okay, all brains need effective stress management technique because we're strategies because we're dealing with stressful events all the time. But this is critical for females in the present moment. Male brains appear to struggle less with stress in the present moment, and I'll show you the research but they're more likely to have a serious depressive event 25 years later, mid to older life. Female brains tend to struggle with stress more in the moment, but they have less of a risk for a major depressive event 25 years later. They are, however, who asked the question about PTSD? I don't see her, but anyway, somebody asked that question. I'm not visual, I'm auditory. You have to talk and then I can find you. When, when women are diagnosed with PTSD, it's statistically much more difficult, much more challenging for them to recover. So men and women come back with PTSD from the war. And if a man wants to work on it, he can be, to go a long way in 9 to 12 months in recovering from PTSD. We were working with women in our PTSD recovery group who'd been in there for five years, and they just could not get past the flashbacks. So it's really critical for women because they're twice as vulnerable to things like PTSD and depression, twice as vulnerable. The body, you often think about the body as being stressed. You know, you get aches and pains and you don't feel like eating and you're tired and so on. But actually, it's the brain that's the first body system to recognize a stressor. Not, not the body, but the brain. And when it perceives a stressor, it reacts with split-second timing, nanosecond, and it initiates the stress response. And this morning I mentioned that one stress episode will take 72 hours to clear those unbalanced chemicals from your brain and body. 
So I truly have met people that I don't think have been clear of those chemicals for 40 years. They just go from one stressor to another. And here's the deal. It's important to identify the stressor, probably talk it out with at least one person, but then stop rehearsing it. Because if you're a good actor or a good actress and you keep rehearsing this stuff, you just keep triggering the stress response. I was over in another country and this woman came up to me at the break and she said, oh, I need to talk to you. And I wanted to say, I'd like to rest my voice, but she looked so distraught. I said, okay. So she launches into this horrible descriptor of this awful event that occurred to her and she starts shaking and crying and I'm going, maybe I need to send her to the ER. I mean, this is really bad. And I, I'm thinking it happened yesterday. And I said, uh, well, tell me when this happened. When I was 16. Okay, that's at least 50 years ago. She's triggered the stress response every time she rehearsed that. And we got to pay attention to that. When the brain recognizes a stressor, and I mentioned that when we talked about fear this morning, here's, here's the cutaway of the brain, but the parts are pulled. I had, the, had my artist draw them separated so you can see that there's the reptilian layer. That's the brain stem and the cerebellum. That's layer number one. No conscious thought there, but that's where all the stress responses are loaded. And then you have the mammalian layer here in the middle. No conscious thought. But that's where you have emotional impulses. It's where you develop phobias. That's where you want relationships. That's where you direct the immune system. And I have questions about the structure. I mean, come on. The health of our immune system and our emotions and relationships come out of a part of the brain that has no conscious thought. Go figure. No wonder we have trouble with that. So we need to get the information up to where we can do conscious thought, but that's fascinating. And then you come up to the, the neocortex, which is where you think consciously about things and make decisions. All right, so corticotropin releasing factor, extremely powerful. It is both a neurotransmitter and a hormone. I'd like you to get this. If it's a neurotransmitter... It impacts the effectiveness of one neuron talking to another, and that's all thinking is. This neuron talks to that neuron, to that neuron, to that neuron. So that a neurotransmitter will hit every neuron in your brain and body. Your brain, your spinal column, all of the neurons in your gut, which are as many as are in your brain. Uh, neurons all over the body. So a neurotransmitter hits all the nervous cells, but the hormones, give me an example of a hormone. Testosterone, estrogen, that will hit every other cell in the body. So when you have something that's both, every cell in your brain and body is going to be impacted. So the CRF gets released by the hypothalamus in this middle layer, and then it goes straight down to the reptilian layer to an alarm center. And it binds to cells in that alarm center. 
and the alarm center is called the locus ceruleus. I don't care whether you remember that or not. I just want you to know that I know its name. <laughs> so it goes down to the locus ceruleus. And when it gets to the locus ceruleus, then the norepinephrine, which is another hormone and neurotransmitter, alerts the rest of the brain and body that we have a problem here. This newsflash, if you will, creates a heightened emotional arousal throughout the brain, meaning it gets super alert. And it can be very helpful if you need to quickly respond to some kind of imminent stressor. But if it becomes chronic, it's a precursor to depression. Meaning if you keep initiating the stress response and CRF keeps getting poured out, that is a feature of depression. So do we cause our own depression? Not necessarily, but we can certainly exacerbate it and we can certainly trigger uh, the factors that can lead to depression. Now, CRF is so powerful that I have listed a few things for you just because research is burgeoning in this area, and I find it so fascinating. So, for example, CRF can suppress appetite. And now the research is linking that with anorexia nervosa. So that the underpinning of anorexia may actually be unrecognized stress that keeps pouring out the CRF. It can increase subjective anxiety, as I mentioned, which can lead to depression. It's linked with euphoric feelings that accompany alcoholism, which is one reason alcoholism is so hard to deal with for many people. Because alcohol is a pure and simple toxin to the brain. And as soon as somebody drinks a little alcohol, the brain recognizes that as a toxin, and it's a stress. So it pours out CRF. And one of the things that CRF does is make you feel a little euphoric for a brief period of time to try to combat this. So people who get involved with alcoholism remember how good they felt when they started to drink, but there's not a brain on the planet that knows when they've reached the point at which it's no longer euphoria, now you're dumping you know, all of the stuff that's going to be harmful to your brain, but that's what we believe is the reason it's so hard to change that. It triggers inflammation. Now they're linking that with both multiple sclerosis and arthritis because inflammation seems to be underlying those. And, hello, high levels of CRF have been found in the cerebral spinal fluid of individuals not only with major depression, but also in the brains of people who committed suicide. Which means when someone commits suicide, they are not in their right mind. Their mind is in an altered state because of the power of CRF. And we need to stop telling people, well, it's really too bad that Joe committed suicide because he's going straight to hell and he'll never make it to heaven. Says who? He committed suicide, or she did, when the brain was in an altered state due to this powerful chemical. And people who study scripture will remember 
that I think it's Jeremiah 17.10, somewhere in there, talks about the Lord looks at the mind and the heart. He knows whether the person was loaded with CRF or not. And it's none of our business to be judgmental. So CRF is just huge. Rats make very good research animals because the rat is very like the human being in terms of brain neurons. In fact, it's very difficult, if you can do it at all, to look at a rat neuron and a human neuron and tell which is which. So I tell young people, if somebody calls you a rat, that's no problem. you got brain neurons that are the same. So not only are the neurons the same, but the rat and the human peptides, peptides are chemicals that impact mood. And, you know, human beings can get addicted to substances, so can rats. And some of these human peptides are hormones and some are transmitters and some are both and they all impact mood. The interesting thing is you can teach rats to do what are called cognitive tasks. You know, they have to think. So you get a complex maze and you put a rat in the maze and you do a complex maze for humans like walking through hedgerows or something and guess who figures it out first? It's not the human. So they can be trained to do very cognitive tasks and, you know, do a lot of distinguishing between things that are even, if it's this odor, then you'll get a reward. If it's that odor, you won't. And they look, they can do that very quickly. So researchers were not understanding how it is that women are twice as susceptible to stressors like depression and PTSD as are males. So what's the deal here? So they set up an experiment. They took males and female rats, and they've got these big barrels or vats, you know, half full of water. The water's too high for them to touch the bottom, but it's low enough that they can't jump out. And they put them in, and then they watch them swim. They're amazing swimmers. They can swim for up to 48 hours. And there's a graduate student at each water barrel or whatever. And as soon as their little nose starts getting close to the surface, they haul them out. So they, males and females could swim about the, about the same number of hours, 48 hours. But then they found that the neurons in the rat brains responded very differently if one was a female and one was a male. So here's the research. Down in the locus ceruleus, where's the locus ceruleus? Brainstem. Here is a drawing of a female rat neuron in the locus ceruleus. And the rat is stressed by having swam, swum, whatever the word is, for 48 hours. Do you see these little things around the edge of the neuron? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven in that drawing. Think of those as doors or windows. 
their receptor molecules on the surface of the cell, meaning that they're able to receive things like the CRF. It can get into the neuron through these windows or doors. There are some little green things in here called arrestins, and they're not doing diddly. Because all of these windows stay open in the female rat brain, it takes in all the CRF that is pumped out because of the stressor. And therefore, the, the brain has increased reactivity because it's taking, the neurons are taking in all the CRF. Have I said that in a way you got it? Good. Up and down means yes, by the way. Now, here is the stressed male rat brain. Now, take a look at what's happening here. As soon as the CRF is released and that rat brain is under stress, the little green arrestins start doing something. They don't know why they don't do anything in the, in the female brain. But in the male brain... They start slamming the window shut or closing the doors. This one's already been pulled in. This one's being pulled in. That one's next. And in general, those arrestins will slam windows or doors closed on at least half of those receptor molecules, which means the male brain only takes in half, of the, half as much CRF. So it's not... It's not excessively reactive. It only took in half the stuff. So here's the bottom line in a nutshell. Men, you tend to underreact to stressors, period. You don't even take the stuff in. Women, you tend to overreact to the stressors because you're getting double the amount of CRF. So here you see them side by side. These receptors all stay open, and at least half of these get closed. So what do we perceive? What do we observe in real life? She is just so upset, and she's hanging on to the chandelier because this is so awful. And he's going, I don't know what your problem is. I don't think it's that bad. Well, you've just underestimated, and she has just overestimated. And if you pay attention, you'll see this everywhere. I remember a couple that came to my office. She walks in, steam coming out her ears. He walks in, hand in his pockets, looking everywhere but at her or me. So I said to her, uh, what can I do to help you? And she said, he wants his mother to come and live with us. And if she does, I'm out of there. I'm thinking, hmm, interesting. So I said to him, talk to me about your mother. He still hasn't looked at me. He's looking out the window. He goes, well, she's not the easiest person in the world to get along with, but come on, how long can she live? <laughs> She'll probably outlive him. So his wife is overreacting, and he is totally underreacting. So I sat him down and I explained this to him. And I said to him, so are you wildly excited about uh, having your mother live with you? He goes, no, but 
what are we going to do? I said, you're going to find a little apartment to help her rent. Well, she wants to live with us. I said, so if a skunk wanted to come and live with you, would you take it in? Come on, it's your home, it's your relationship, it's your wife. Do you want your mother-in-law living with you? Well, probably when it comes push to shove, I don't. So when you're having an argument about something, it's usually he's underreacted and you're overreacted and somewhere in the middle is the solution if you get that. Got it? Now, Deborah Bangasser, who is one of the researchers that looks at stress, has done some fabulous research on the female brain and on the male brain. But this is what she said. Read this aloud with me. The female brain alarm system is more sensitive to stressors and to CRF, period. Even in the absence of stressors, the female stress signaling system is more sensitive from the start. So, gentlemen, if you want a nice, happy life, do what you can to minimize stress. Because your wife's going to overreact. And when she does, if you say, I don't think it's that bad, come on, get a clue, that's just going to be an additional stressor. You know, she'll go from the tabletop to the chandelier. So it's really doable to work with this once you understand it. So this lack of receptor internalization, all that means is, you know, in the female brain, nobody closes any windows. So it takes all the CRF in. It'll make everything seem worse in the moment. Remember that. Now, increased receptor internalization, meaning it's actually slamming windows shut and pulling them indoors, inside the cell, actually means that in the moment, because you've underestimated everything, it's going to make the stressor seem no big deal. But here is the risk for the males. This less intense stress response in the moment seems to be problematic over time. What does that mean? It means that the male brain is at clearly increased risk for a major depressive episode 25 years later. And indeed, we are seeing midlife depression among males. I mean, look at your poor pastor. <laughs> Pardon? I'm being very facetious. You know it better than I do. <laughs> All right. So now they wanted to know what's, what's going on with these males that 25 years later are crashing and burning with this depressive episode. So they decided to survey lots of men. They began with white males and black males. They're now doing it with Asian males and I think Native American males and a few others. So University of Michigan, they did this survey, and then the data was broken out by gender and by race. So they did it on white males and, white and black males and white females and black females, because remember, they always want to compare the gender differences. 
So once they broke it out by gender, there was no difference for a risk of a major depressive episode based on race for females. And one of the reasons they think that is because these women have nine support people on average. So they, even if they're overreacting, they are getting support from their group of support individuals. But now they come to the males, and they found a major difference between black males and white males. And you white guys need to listen up. Because here's the deal. Despite statistically higher levels of exposure to stressful life events, black males have disproportionately lower rates of depression. It appears that that's because unlike white males who have zero or one support person, black males usually get together with each other and do some support. You know, you'll see them out on the corner lot shooting baskets. Have any of you been to a pre Preservation Hall in New Orleans? Okay, there's a little hole in the wall, literally. Maybe holds 30 people standing. And... I went, every time I go to New Orleans, I'll go there if I possibly can. There's no seats. You get there two hours early and you stand and wait. Nine o'clock. Here comes five guys. Every time I've been there, they're all five black guys. And I remember one time, this one man had a little cane. And literally, he was walking like this. And I thought, I wonder what he's going to do. Then he gets to the piano, sits down, throws away his cane, hits the keyboard, and plays for three hours just phenomenally. 104. And all his buddies. And they're asking for, you know, what would you like to hear? And somebody said Amazing Grace, and they played variations on Amazing Grace for 15 minutes, and I cried. It's wonderful. Okay, that's the kind of support that helps you avoid that major midlife depression that can be so lethal for males. And if the CRF is high enough, you know, that's when they jump off the top of the building. They're so depressed. Stressors interact with the brain in what researchers call a predictable equation. It's one of the 2080 rules. Only 20% of any negative impact to your brain and body is due to the stress or event. 20%, that's not much. 80% is due to your perception of the event. How bad is it? How much weight are you giving to it? So I can't do anything about the 20% when, you know, negative things happen in the environment. You know, I show up somewhere to speak and, you know, whoever was supposed to run the PA doesn't show up and nobody else knows how to do it. That could be a little stressful. But I can control 80% of whether or not that triggers a stress response just by my perception of the event. And I'm pretty much learning to laugh about it. And usually there's somebody that together we can figure it out. 
Or I'm giving a seminar and all of a sudden you can't hear a thing. My mic's gone dead. And one time I said, Yoo-hoo back there, my mic is dead. Can you, you know, fix this? And he goes, of course it's dead. I turned it off. I don't like what you just said. <laughs> Hysterical. I just got a whole burst of something because I was laughing so hard. So Epictetus. Notice that I have put second century Greek philosopher there because I was over in Greece and learned about Epictetus. And you can go to Wikipedia and you can look up Epictetus and you'll see a picture of him. He was a slave for some point in time. Evidently he was worth a lot because when he tried to run away and got caught, his owner busted up one leg pretty badly so that he couldn't, certainly couldn't run and hardly could walk. He had a crutch. And he had a scribe that went everywhere with him because it's hard to use a crutch and write on a tablet. And supposedly his scribe wrote down things that his scribe thought were pretty important. And this is one of the things that he supposedly wrote. It's not so much what happens that matters as what you think about what happens. And if you can get that, you've just dropped 50% of all the stressors off the back of your pickup truck. Because you can change what you think about something. And I am learning to laugh about almost everything. I mean, we're hysterical creatures. Do you realize that the monkeys at the San Francisco Zoo were getting depressed? And they couldn't figure out why they were getting depressed. So they set up a camera to watch them 24 hours a day for a month or so. And the data showed them that they were depressed after the two days every week that the zoo was closed. And when they were looking at the film... Here's all these human beings standing outside the monkey cages, sticking out their tongue and whittling their ears and doing all kinds of hysterical things. And the monkeys loved it. They were laughing. And now there's nobody at the zoo for two days as they're depressed. So they set up a huge flat screen TV. And on the two days that the zoo is closed, they're playing pictures of people outside the, the monkey cages making the monkeys laugh. All right, so learn to laugh. The only time that sometimes it takes me a few seconds to laugh, you know, I'm trying to evaluate. Is it going to make any difference in the next 12 months? I'm going to start laughing right now. If it's going to make a difference, give me a minute to think about it, and then I'll laugh. But it's not worth it for your health, which takes us back to Paul. Be anxious for nothing. Do you remember those, those of you who are scriptural students? Do you remember... Uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. Who's been to the Holy Land and seen those prisons? Okay, no place I want to go. They're in stocks, sitting on hard stone. What are they doing? Singing what kind of songs? Praise songs. What's the antidote for fear? Gratefulness. Hello. So the Bible's filled with examples that substantiate current research, which is really fun. This is my brain's opinion. Scripture gives us the stories hoping that we'll get it. 
But fortunately, now we are also getting science that tells us the reason that the admonition works. And it's not just fear. It can be depression and stressors as well. So I encourage you to take a look at how you react to stress and how you respond when you see other people stressed. And couples can help each other. You know, the other day I was having a slight difference of opinion with one of my colleagues. And he said, I think you're way too worried about this. And I thought, okay, brain function difference. And I said, I'll own that. I'm probably thinking it's worse than it is. But this is my brain's opinion. You think it's nothing at all. And if we don't do something, then this, this, and this might happen. And he goes, oh, well, when you put it that way, I can see your point of view. All right, well, let's see what the two of us can do together. Okay, then we're fine. Otherwise, we're polarized. I'm overreacting. He's underreacting. And never the twain shall meet. Got it? Good. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And I hope you learned something that you put into practice right now because it's that practical. Thank you.